Hi, everybody, and welcome to a special edition of the Copcast podcast. Today, I am joined by only one person, and that is Mr. Dylan Baker, uh, who has not yet... That mean that I'm important yet. (laughs) No, it certainly does not. Basically, we're having him on the pod today, number one, because with his time zone, he hasn't been able to appear, and he is a major part of this this pod uh, going forward, and you will be hearing, sadly, more from him as, as we go forward. But the real reason we're having him on is... He sort of broke his cherry. He's not a virgin anymore. He got to go and see Liverpool. And I, and I wanted to, to basically talk to him as a first time. You know, D- Dylan gets a lot of flack and, on Twitter and whatnot because he, he's only followed football a short amount of time, even though he's consumed a massive amount of information in that time. And, uh, you know, to his credit. But it was the first time he's ever got to see the Reds. He was in St. Louis for the game uh, against Roma. Sadly, we got beat. But I was just curious to see from a first-time fan, especially from the United States, you know, such an, a, a growing market over there, as we, as we saw with the friendlies, um, you know, what his experience was like and so on. So we thought we'd do a quick splash and dash pod here um, on his experience. So, Dylan, first of all, how are you this evening? All good with you? Yeah, yeah, not too bad. I'm still I'm still recovering from the the travel that that was part of that trip because it was not only it was not only to to head up to St. Louis to go see the Reds for the first time, which before we get into any of the specifics, oh, that was cool. But it was also to help move in my wife. So uh, over the course of three days, we did about a thousand miles of traveling, and I am still I'm still pretty whooped. No, I'm sure you are, but. You know, ultimately, the result didn't go your way, Dylan. You know, and I know what it's like to, you know, I think the first ever time I went to see Liverpool, they lost. And it's, it's a novel experience, you know, especially, you know, I, I went from Ireland across, uh, crossing the Liverpool boat from Belfast and, you know, the, tr- the trudge, the trudge home after a, after a loss can sometimes be a little bit, uh, a little bit downbeat. But overall, the experience, uh, how, did, how did you find it? You know, obviously your first time ever seeing the team. What, what did you make of the whole experience? Well, to be honest with you, I, I remember because I went with my dad, which is which is hilarious in and of itself. Because my dad, my dad's the guy who's born and bred American football. Uh, that's the only thing. That's the only thing that he can handle. That's the only thing that he cares about. Uh, and that's just that's just the way that things are. So to go with him was was a was a pretty funny time anyway. But uh, on the Liverpool experience in general, the one thing I will say is I remember telling him. You know, Dad, this is the preseason. Uh, you know, this isn't going to be like with the NFL where you've got half-packed NFL stadiums that seat, you know, 80,000. So you've got 40,000 people there. You know, this is, this is football. This is soccer. Uh, it's going to look. And you can go home in a couple, you can go home in a couple hours. You're not stuck there for three weeks. Uh, yeah, exactly. There, there is no six hours worth of tailgating. People actually go to go to the game and these sorts of things. So just to kind of prepare him, I, I I was under the impression that in in the the packed Bush Stadium that's home to the uh, the baseball team, the St. Louis Cardinals, I was expecting uh, a few thousand, four or five, but the the attendance almost I think it ended up being around twelve or thirteen thousand, which you know almost entirely were made made up of Liverpool fans. So it, it was from from the experience standpoint, from a fan's perspective, you know, especially with the amount of traveling that I had to do, that made a world of difference. I I got. Got the chance to to meet up with one Chris Erickson who is uh, at bu braves fourteen on Twitter. Found out that you know a fellow that I interact with all the time uh, is also a short, fat dwarf, bearded, uh, much like myself. Uh, only difference really between us is that he, <laughs> this guy's got red hair.
hair. I ended up sitting, sitting next, uh, we got sandwiched between, uh, a Scottish guy and a Liverpudlian guy who, <laughs> the two of which could not be farther off in terms of their own fandom. The Scottish guy talked a lot of sense. The Liverpudlian fellow was a bit, a bit of an oddball, a bit of an extravagant, uh, <laughs> a bit of an extravagant dude. But, you know, between, between being sandwiched between them, uh, you know, having the Louisville supporters group who, who I got group tickets with, uh, in front of me and, and, and some folks based out of Arkansas behind me. It was a great experience. You know, uh, there wasn't a second of the game that was, that, that was missed from my perspective. And yet I had conversations with, with every single one of these folks. We had great seats in a great stadium, a great atmosphere. Other than the loss, it was everything that I could have dreamed watching Liverpool in the States would have been. No, and obviously, you know, I know you've attended other football matches, Dylan, um, you know, there in the state, and, and recently you have as well. You were at Chicago Fire a couple of weeks back. Mm. Um, you know, I'm just sort of wondering who, who stood out? What, what, what did you see about that team or the, or the Liverpool team? You know, obviously you're, you're, you're restricted to watching on television and so, and so on. You've, you've no real choice in the matter at the moment, given your, your position. Well, you know, what was the difference? What, what, what did you really feel? Was the difference of being in the stadium, the feel that you got, uh, especially in, in the US where, you know, football is taking off. I know we run the other website, World Football Index, and, you know, we, we do quite a bit on America and how much the game is growing there. What's your perceptions of, of what you saw at, at the actual stadium? Well, the one thing that I will say is that whenever you're talking about, when you're talking about a globally renowned team like Liverpool, and as well as a, a, a very, a very well renowned team in, in AS Roma as well, you're talking about a completely different story. When I went to go see the Chicago Fire here uh, maybe just two, three weeks ago when I happened to be in Chicago at the right time, it was it was for a cup match. There were maybe 2,000 people there, not really something that anybody was interested in. The Chicago Fire are a struggling team at the moment, to say the, to say the least. You go and see the U.S. men's national team, which is another game that I've been to uh, within the last six months. And while it was, uh, while it was an, an interesting experience because it felt more like an American football game. You know, you've got the American outlaws that are out there hooting and hollering and doing their USA, USA chants and everybody's doing, everybody's going along with it. There's not a whole lot of, of diversity in terms of, in, in terms of the, the other team's fandom because most of the people in the United States that would go to a UN's mess national team game, unless it's against, uh, you know, one of our, one of our rivals like, uh, like a Mexico, for instance, or, or, or a Ghana or something along those lines, almost everybody is there to support the U.S. men's national team, whereas with these big powerhouses, it's all about who you've attached yourself to. So while there was a load of Liverpool fans there, there were also a fair amount, a very fair amount of Roma fans that were there as well. So it's just, it it gives you more, even though it's from that sort of American skewed kind of perspective, it gives you a little bit more of a feel of what a, a, a league match or an international friendly or a tournament match, something along those lines, would feel like. So it, it was different for me, very one-sided, uh, this very one-sided kind to feel based on based on the games that I've been to, but this one, you know, having the chance to hear you never walk alone. It, I mean, it doesn't matter where you are or who you're with or or, or 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 what what's what club you decide to support. It's one of the best things that you can hear, unless you're a Manchester United fan. I suppose that's about the only the the only exception. I'm sure it's just as brilliant, if not more, in Anfield. But son of a bitch, did it sound good in St. Louis? And listen to the. Listening to the Liverpool songs and these sorts of things, it just, it, it, it was just, it was a, it was truly a pleasure to be able to experience that level of, uh, of football. No, and you mentioned songs, and it, it's something that strikes a chord with me because, 
During the World Cup here in Brazil in, in 2014, this town was absolutely chock-a-block with Americans, whose sole chant in life is USA, 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 which That's gets the very old. That's we know. That's every third yeah, word but, here. Yeah, but in seriously, dude, that gets fucking old really, really, really quick. Yes, it does. Especially, especially during a month-long tournament, it gets old really, really quick. And I'm just curious, your your thoughts. Obviously, you've said, you know, all the Liverpool songs there were out on, on display. Was it was it evident throughout the game? Is, is that the type of crowd it was? And and what do you think the reasons that, you know, obviously they're borrowing from, from British football culture, basically, the songs and so on at the Liverpool games. Why do, why do American fans not make up their own songs? Well, it's because songs here, I know we've had the opportunity to speak about this on WFI, so it'll be, it, it, it'll be interesting to see, uh, to, to really talk about it in, in terms of Liverpool specifically, but it's just not an American thing. It, it never really has been. I, and I'm not sure, I'm not sure if it's this sort of self-imposed masculinity complex that, that, that American society seems to have, uh, or, or, or what I like to call big dick syndrome, or if it's, if it's more just, Songs were never, they're not really a huge part of our history outside, outside really of the military. Um, I'm not entirely sure where it grounds from. I would, I would, I would say more the latter than the former, even though the former is far funnier. But yeah, it's never really been a part of our culture. You, you go to any sport here in the States, whether it's major or minor, whether it's a professional team or a semi-professional team or, or a youth level team, and nobody sings songs. It was very, very strange to me. Again, as you said, being new to, being new to football, uh, which inherently means being new to Liverpool fandom. It's still strange for me to hear every once in a while. There's nothing strange anymore about You Never Walk Alone because that is the most passionate, uh, sub- way of supporting a- any club I've ever heard it is in, in terms of a, a single entity, a single experience, but, you know, some of these other things that, that folks will do, whereas everywhere else in the world, you would usually, you would, you would hear them singing the Liverpool, Liverpool in the stadium. Here, it would be more of a chant. And what was crazy was at that game, in that, in that environment, American fans, non-American fans, whether they're from Europe or South America, Asia, doesn't matter. Every motherfucker sang. And it was just, I didn't even know the words to it, and I just felt this this welling up inside me, like I want, I, you know, if I knew the words, I would sing along in a heartbeat. And it was it was so strange to me because you don't see that anywhere else. I don't know where where necessarily the singing takes a takes a, a far back seat in American society in terms of sport, but I will say. Uh, when these when these European teams, when these Italian teams, the, the these big clubs come across, if you're a fan of that club and you know those songs, it does not fucking matter where you grew up, what you grew up playing. You are you're, you're singing that song, and it's that's the impact of of, of football, and 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 in this particular instance, that's the impact uh, of, of Liverpool. I'll tell you, you know, you stand in the cop. I stood there many a night, especially European nights. Like, there's many a night you get you mm. get your breath taken away by you'll never walk alone. You know, as I say, I'm just sorry I missed that Dortmund game. Jesus, that was that was something special. <laughs> but but I'm I'm sort of thinking along the lines as well. We saw some big numbers as well in in the Californian leg of the tour, uh, Dylan. You know, moving along and football does seem to be taken off. And I'm just curious as a question: How much do you think? Um, you know, from, from solely a Liverpool point of view, how much do you think of, of the FSG ownership? You know, our, on our last podcast, we, we had a, a bit of a swipe at them. Um, you know, I, I know there's, 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 I'm, I'm happy with FSG, but I can see the guy's point of view who have maybe issues with, with certain things. But I'm just wondering, how much have FSG built the brand in the USA 
in your opinion, in, 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 in the time of ownership? Because even from me afar, it seems that the brand, and again, we talked about this in bodies, the brand of Liverpool seems to be getting very well established in the States. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's, that's an absolutely fair statement. They've made such an impact here for, for Liverpool fans and not, not even just for a, uh, already existing Liverpool fans, but to bringing, bringing more folks to, to Liverpool fandom. It's been, it's been massive. And, and it's not just because they're an American company as well. With American football, a lot of times what you'll end up finding is that for those who aren't born and bred football enthusiasts, uh, you'll find that they tend to either stick to, uh, one or two different kinds of teams. Either A, it's the, the big four, so to speak. You got a lot of Chelsea fans, a lot of Arsenal fans, big man United fans, big man City fans, uh, here as of very recent years. But, uh, if they're not in that particular brand, then they're in the brand of uh, teams that have had American players in the past. So you'll find a lot of Tottenham fans, not only because of currently uh, the fact that DeAndre Yendlin, even though he's playing for Sunderland because he's contracted to Tottenham, you have them because Clint Dempsey, you have Fulham fans because of Clint Dempsey, as well as uh, Landon Donovan, which also has led to Bayern Munich fans over in Germany. So, you know, it, it, typically they'll fall within one of those two categories, and yet you have such a massive, uh, a massive supportership of Liverpool fans here because of the work that FSG has has put in in order to in order to um, Americanize, so to speak what Liverpool is. Now, a lot of folks, and you'll see it on Twitter, you'll see it all over the place, a lot of folks will, will call that a bad thing. And because I've listened to the most recent Copcast where you guys have essentially tackled that question, what has what has FSG done positively or negatively? What has FSG done, or excuse me, what has FSG not done? There are there are positive and negative sides to the to the whole endeavor because while while Americanization means that you're coming from business people rather than football people, which ultimately presents a problem. At the same time, Liverpool haven't been in this healthy of a financial state at any given point in time. So when you take it into the context of, of what FSG's done for the club, I will let everybody listen to episode four of Copcast. That way, that way you can get the full scope of opinions that are that are very very strong, uh, not only in their beliefs but also strong in, in in the base that they have behind it. But at least on the American side of things, while my while my story is a bit of an oddball one based on my experience with football prior to me actually deciding to to watch the sport and ultimately falling falling in love with it. A lot of folks here are actually deciding first and foremost, despite the 26 year wait for a title, despite some of the bullshit that we went through with Brendan Rodgers and Hicks and Gillette and the big the big gap in the 2000s, you know, where if you don't have Rafa Benitez, then, you know, you really don't have that good of a football team. Uh, you know, the Hodgson effect and all of this other bullshit, you still have people committing to be Liverpool fans because of the work that FSG has done to, 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 in order to essentially promote what Liverpool is. They're promoting the history. They're promoting, you know, these, these big name players that we do have that may not quite be, you know, world class by any stretch, but are, are, are people that you can get behind. Can, can I just ask you? Um... What, sure. You know, for, for people maybe in Europe and the UK, um, what are FSG doing? What are FSG doing in, in the States? Obviously, it's, it, 
I don't get to see it. You're you're obviously in the country. Well, you know, you talk about how they're 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 building Liverpool up. What exactly do you see day to day, or week to week, month by month, that that, that Liverpool are being you know pushed forward by FSG in the United States? Well, for for the the fullest answer, uh, I, I know a couple of people that you can ask, but based on my experience, what I've seen FSG doing is they're doing a lot of they're doing a lot of targeted marketing. If you've done any kind of search for soccer or the Premier League or or an English national team, whatever the case may be, you're going to ultimately end up with an ad of some sort about Liverpool on your page, whether that's on Facebook, uh, some of these other sites that, that generate based on your search history, um, you know, the ads that end up popping up, all of the all of this sort of supposedly organic, natural advertising that's based on you, they have utilized that in order to make sure that Liverpool is in your face as often as they possibly can. They're also, of course, they've been doing these preseason tours here in the States, and they've been bigging it up like a son of a bitch. And it's it's done so well. You see the attendance numbers uh, when they were out in California, whether it's at the whether it's at the Rose Bowl uh, or, or, or the other fucking stadium that they played at. It, it slipped my mind at the moment. But regardless, you, you, you see the buildup in, in the marketing campaigns for Liverpool. Liverpool's coming. Liverpool's coming to the States. All these other guys will announce that their tour is in the United States, but Anytime you hear preseason in Liverpool, you're hearing a fucking ad about it, essentially. Uh, you know, so it, it, it's getting everybody ready for it. But on the flip side, it's also bringing, bringing everything close to home in terms of FSG being ever present in the Liverpool conversation. You know, if you, if you want to look at ESPN or Goal.com or 90 Minutes, whatever the case may be, you know, ultimately baseball, which is where uh, Fenway Sports Group comes from, is even though it is dwindling day by day, it is still America's pastime. So having that connection to a sport that's that's huge here in the States still, um, you've got such a you've got that connection, so to speak. Uh, and again, realistically, that makes all the difference in the world. You know, you can talk about American owners elsewhere uh, like the, like the Glazers and Manchester United, but the Glazers are seen as these, you know, these backwards, let's throw money at people. Let's, you know, uh, get as much money as we can. Let's overspend. Let's bring in these big name players. Whereas FSG advertises Liverpool as the every men's club, which really they, we, we kind of are, you know, so they're taking the positive things about the club. They're bringing to them to the United States. They're doing that sort of target based marketing and it's, working it is really working there are very very sort of mixed feelings towards fsg and don't get me wrong on that podcast i totally understand why why those negativities exist why people do oh absolutely questions and but you know and, and it is beyond i i keep harping back to um you know they saved us from from the cowboys basically from, from <laughs> that they did and for me, that, that's something I, 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 there, there's so much credit in the bank for them. You know what I mean? Because we're in a completely different mm. place. So you look at, you look at our rivals like the likes of United, Riddle with that. We're not. But I do get the point of view that they maybe do lack that ambition. And that, you know, especially whenever you see, if you dig into FSG and you look at their, their dealings in the baseball market, you're talking hundreds of millions being thrown about all over the place. And then you come to Liverpool, well, you get 20 million here, 30 million there. You know what I mean? Whereas they, they, for, for, for a flagship name in baseball, they'll pay, they'll pay hundreds of millions. Um, well, but I think I think the difference there, just because I haven't been on uh, been on the the main Copcast thing, to throw in my two cents there, the only thing that I would support FSG for in that sense, and the fact that they haven't you know begun spending that amount of money, 
is the fact that in in American sport, whether you're talking baseball or basketball, and even now uh, American football has reached that point, it is far more common to see these these massive numbers in terms of a contract because in 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 the states it all goes to the player rather than to each individual club. So obviously with with, with football. You know, you pay a club X amount of money to receive the player, and then you have to determine that player's wages. Whereas in baseball, if somebody wants to, if somebody wants to end their contract, there may be there may be some compensation involved. But for the most part, you're just signing up and you're signing a new player on the contract, or you're you're trading. Uh, you know, if it's this big 150, 180 million dollar deal, then you're trading two or three, or sometimes even four or five of your players in order to compensate properly uh, the, the organization that's giving you this, this massive player. So because of that, because of that mentality, as well as because of the, the, the way that money is essentially uh, pushed forward and, and backward here in the States, it's very, very weird for someone like FSG to say, now, hold on a minute. You, you're telling me that you want me to spend 80 million pounds on this player. It's going to, we'll say, Borussia Dortmund. And then you also want me to turn around and pay this player 150 pounds a week or 150,000 pound, pounds a week. Son of a bitch. That's that's some fucking money. Whereas, you know, there, there isn't that there isn't that initial amount of money that's that's thrown out there. It's just it's just really the contract. So at least from that perspective, I can understand their hesitancy in order to, to, to get into that realm. But realistically, Alex Rodriguez was signed to the first hundred million dollar hundred million dollar deal in baseball. 10, uh, 12 years ago, uh, you had to, any baseball fanatics would have to, would have to correct me there. But, you know, whereas shit, we, we've had, we haven't, uh, in, in the footballing world, we haven't we reached a hundred million, a hundred million. Pound. <laughs> right. Well, we haven't reached, we haven't reached the level of a hundred million pound transfer yet. You know, so it may be pushing that way with this Pogba deal, potentially being closed here in the coming days. But, you know, it's just, it's just a complete different, it's a completely different mentality in, in terms of where the money goes in, in, in the world sport, in, in football, that you're spending. It's, it's just a different kind of spending, essentially. No, I hear you. And, you know, I just want to you know, close this out, Dylan. And, and, you know, I appreciate everything you said there. Um, it does make sense in some ways when you realize the background that they actually come from. But just, you know, the fact that you haven't been on the pod with you to basically time, or time zone issues. Um, I just want to give you a, a chance to, to give us a bit of your thoughts, maybe on what you saw in St. Louis. And basically, you know, I know you've watched all the games there. I haven't had the benefit of watching them. We didn't get them on TV here. Just what, what your thoughts are for the season coming and, and what, what you expect based on what you've seen, and especially at first hand. Uh, of the things I've seen, if I can put it into a Cliff Notes version, uh, first and foremost, it hurts a lot that Carius um, has broken his hand in terms of in terms of what that means for the team. I'm all for Mignolet being a backup. I'm all for Mignolet filling in for injury. But to lose somebody that's come in so highly touted and has performed well realistically uh, in in the preseason that he's uh, that he's had the chance to. You know, yeah, he led in the goal against Chelsea, but you know, it was more more due to marking than anything um, on that particular note. Just didn't quite get there fast enough. So. You know, he, he, he looks the talent. You hate to see that it's his hands that's broken because from a goalkeeping perspective, you kind of fucking need those. So, yeah, speed recovery to him, it's going to hurt for the amount of time that he's gone, especially for the first couple of games that we've got coming up in the season, Arsenal and Tottenham and what have you. So 
Uh, that's note number one. Uh, note number two is up until the St. Louis game, I think Clavin is turning into a heck of a lot better signing than what I originally anticipated. You know, comes in as nobody knows his name. Most people can't locate his country on a, on a map of Europe, even if it has the, the, the abbreviation EST written on it. So for him to come in and do the job that he's done in light of all of this Sacco mess uh, has been brilliant. You know, didn't have the best game in St. Louis, fair enough. But he performed brilliantly against Milan and had a pretty good game against Chelsea as well. Another thing to point out is that Sadio Mane has to play on the right. One of the things that I noticed from a tactical perspective is that when they swapped wings and they sent Shea Yojo from the left to the right wing in the in the first time that I've seen a, uh, the true four two three one that Klopp prefers played this preseason, and they sent Sadio Mane onto the left hand side, he became increasingly less effective. Mane having a guy like Nathaniel Klein to work with down that right hand channel, Shea Yojo likes to do his own thing, you know, kind of kind of by himself, whereas Mane needs that assistance. So we need to find a way tactically to keep him on that right-hand side. Bringing Coutinho back into the team is going to make a big difference as well. Uh, the other thing that I'll point out is, is that um, while I don't necessarily think a left-back signing is imperative, I think it would be very, very good to have. We've spent some money, and there are some good quality left-backs out there. As our target list has dwindled, I don't want to make a high-pressure buy. We see We've seen what that does with Mario Balotelli. So with all of that said, if Milner plays and starts a game for any reason at left back, other than I'm going to lose my fucking marbles, he is not a left back. He never will be a left back, just like he's not a central midfielder, but he absolutely is not a left back. And anybody who said he's put in a solid performance essentially is saying that he didn't fuck up so bad that people are starting to lose respect for the guy who actually maintain respect for the guy. So while I like the player, he did put up some numbers last year in, in, in terms of uh, creating chances and, and scoring assists. He put up some big goals as well. If I, if I see him play a left back, I'm going to lose my fucking marbles. Yeah, and I did mention on the last podcast, could you imagine the fume if Rogers has still been involved in him, in him doing that? But I've just, you know, one mm. thing to add on that, Dylan, and, and it's something that was said quite a few weeks back. This guy, Clavin, um, it was Jean Gorski Mercier uh, had said on bodies that him and Matip are the two best blockers in the Bundesliga for the season past. So, mm. you know, he, he, he seems to be right on that. And this guy, as I say, I haven't had the luxury of seeing him yet. But based on Andy Wales and, and Jan would, would be fairly good on the Bundesliga and both think that that's going to be a very good signing for us and could be more pivotal than maybe we first expected. Uh, you know, would you buy into that? I think so, especially if this, if this whole Sacco business turns, turns farther south than what any of us want to, then that's, then it'll be massive to have a guy like Clavin come in and, and not to provide that sort of, that sort of uh, a veteran settling of the back line, maybe not necessarily in a leadership role, but just knowing that you've got somebody that you can trust there. The only thing that I'll say, obviously preseason, uh, you know, you take with a grain of salt, no matter what sport you're playing, you always take preseason with a grain of salt. But what I saw in the first two matches where he did play well, he had a midfield three in front of him made up of a variety of different people, whether it was Obi Ajaria, uh, Cameron Brannigan, Jordan Henderson, Emre Can. Uh, well, he didn't play in the first two games, but you know, a, a, a plethora of different midfielders. He he looked very very comfortable in a midfield three where we have three attackers in front of them. But as I said before, in the in the St. Louis match that I attended, that was the first real attempt 
at a four-two-three-one with Emre Sean and uh, Jeannie Wijnaldum playing two, uh, basically the first half together before Sean came off, and he just didn't quite look as comfortable. Now that could be because uh, Emre's kind of a He's kind of a roaming style defensive midfielder where he'll go forward, he'll come back, he'll stay put, he'll go forward, he'll stay forward, he'll come back, and these sorts of things. It could be because of that and the fact that Genie Wijnaldum really does push forward, whether it's from a central midfield or a defensive midfield position, he does he does like to get into the box when he has the chance to. But that would be the only thing that I would say worries me a little bit going into the upcoming season is that if we fully convert to Klopp's 4-2-3-1 and we have, whether it's Henderson and Sean or Sean and Wijnaldum, whatever the case may be, if we have a two in front of him, I would like to see him develop in his comfort zone uh, playing with just two midfielders uh, that are holding in front of him. If not, then we may be... Uh, if we're forced to use Klavan, which again isn't necessarily a bad thing, I would be more comfortable with it being a three at this particular point in time. No, I'm, I couldn't disagree with you on that, Bill. But listen, we—I want to bring it to a close there. Don't it was, you know, just nice to get uh, a feel of, of what's been going on in the USA, and, and you know, it's, I'm just delighted for you that you actually got to your first game and you've actually seen Liverpool now because it is, uh, you know, I made a joke at the start. You know, you you, you bust your cherry, basically. Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You know, and, and and I'm just so delighted for you. I just thought you know we could do this and and, and have a bit of a chat, uh, especially from the American perspective, which is, you know, I, I was always very negative around the the American market and football, but but I I maybe live in this side of the pond, albeit in in the, the crappy part of America, the South part. Um, <laughs> you, you know, it's. It's just nice to watch the growth of football in America, and I think I'm exposed to it a little bit more here, and for that reason, I just wanted to have the chat with you. But listen, hopefully we'll hear from you again uh, on Copcast very soon. Hopefully your schedule and when you when you get moved to Chicago and whatnot will allow for a little bit more. Um, anything you want to plug while you're on uh, as a quick closure? Um, you can find me in and around a, uh, a few different things on, on the World Football Index. I, I'm, I'm planning an expansion of the State of the Union of American Soccer, which kind of ties in what we've been talking about today. I'm planning an expansion there to cover a little bit more of the, the minutia of, of what how the American soccer system works, why it sucks, and, and think, ways that we can fix it. You can find me. Uh, I'm going to be hosting a uh, – or excuse me. I'm going to be participating on the same website in a Premier League podcast that's hosted by the wonderful Jesse Loesch over at World Football Index. Um, you know, we're going to have some quality guests lined up. I'm, I'm very excited to be back talking about the Premier League, especially having so much time off of podcasts. Um, and you can look for me. I'm going to be penning some articles for Cop Left. I know I wrote one companion article for the Copcast podcast, number one, fucked off for, for two and three, unfortunately. But um, I plan on putting one together tomorrow uh, that ties in with something that you guys were talking about that interested me. Uh, I'll reveal that when the article comes out, so to speak. But other than that, yeah, I really hope I get the chance to be on Copcast. I think the first few episodes have been brilliant, and I, 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 I really, truly can't wait to participate. Well, from my end, I just want to say, um, you know, we also have the cop table now involved with us as well on the website there, that you can get their podcasts on the feed. Pete Phillips and the crew and really nice guys, really good podcast. Uh, I edited one up there for them last night. Really good. Give them a follow. Give that one a listen. They do an EPL preview of the season. Absolutely excellent pod. Um, some really, really good guests, some really good points made on it. Um, so if, if you've got some time in your hands, give that one a listen. Uh, yeah, that, I have to listen tonight myself. Yeah, other than that, we'll just see you again. We'll be recording again next week for the full podcast. This has just been a little insert. So if you've listened to it, thank you very much for your time, and we'll talk to you again soon. 
good night. Thanks again.